Hello, and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Graham Wilson. Today, I'm delighted to be able to speak with the doctor who, in 1987, gained worldwide recognition as the principal surgeon in the 22-hour separation of the Binder Siamese twins from Germany. This was the first time twins joined at the back of the head had been separated with both babies surviving. A professor of neurosurgery, oncology, plastic surgery, and pediatrics, he has recently retired from the position of Director of Pediatric Neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital, which he'd held since 1984, when he was aged 33, the youngest major division director in Johns Hopkins history. He's the recipient of numerous honours and awards, including, at last count, 68 honorary doctorate degrees. He's been named one of the United States' 20 foremost physicians and scientists, a living legend, and in 2008, President Bush awarded him the Ford's Theatre Lincoln Medal and the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the United States' highest civilian honours. His name is Dr. Ben Carson, and he joins us for well-being today. Many people have heard the story of how you came from the bottom of your class in school and reached the top, but for those who don't know, can you just tell us why you were an underachiever and how that changed? Well, the nutshell was that my mother, who only had a third grade education, was the only one who believed in me when no one else did. And uh, she noticed in the homes where she worked, wealthy people, that they spent a lot of time reading and didn't spend a lot of time watching TV. So she wanted us to be successful. So after careful consideration and prayer, she imposed upon us uh, a requirement that we read two books apiece from the Detroit Public Libraries every week and submit to her written book reports which she couldn't read, but we didn't know that. And uh, she would put little marks on them and make us think that she was reading them, but she wasn't. And um, I didn't like it very much. I hated it, in fact. Um, and her friends told her that she was wrong, but she was determined that we were going to be successful. And after a while, I actually started enjoying reading the books because I began to know stuff that nobody else knew. And I was really tired of being called a dummy. And I just put two and two together. I said, the reason you know that stuff is because you were reading the books. And, you know, you couldn't get a book out of my hands after that. My mother would say, Benjamin, put that book down and eat your food. It didn't matter. I was always reading. And in the space of the year and a half, I went from the bottom of the class to the top of the class. Did she guide your choice of books to read? No, she didn't. Oh. Uh, she just uh, figured that the reading itself would take care of the problem. And it does, because when you're reading all the time, first of all, you're looking at words. So you learn how to spell. You can always tell a reader because they know how to spell. And then you learn grammar and syntax. Uh, you learn how to express yourself. And then you have to take the sentences and make them to concepts so you learn to use your imagination. All of those are very important things for someone who's going to be successful. So you got through school, graduated with honors, and then got a place at Yale. And you were studying psychology there. Why did you want to be a psychologist? Well, you know, I... Uh, actually decided on psychiatry because on television psychiatrists seem like rich people and you know growing up in squalor and poverty I said you know that'd be kind of nice to be rich um, but when I got to medical school uh, after you know being a psychology major at Yale having professors like Anna Freud the, the daughter of Sigmund Freud and really being gung-ho I, I said you know everybody has special gifts and talents what are yours and I analyzed mine uh, tremendous eye-hand coordination, the ability to think in three dimensions, being a very careful person, never knocking things over and saying, oops, uh, and loving to dissect things. 
I said, you would be a perfect neurosurgeon. A lot of people thought it was a strange idea. There had only been black, eight black neurosurgeons in the history of the world. But I didn't even consider that. I just said, this feels very natural to me. This is what I should do. And really, that's how I made the decision to go into neurosurgery. That process, how you analyzed what you were good at, some people have trouble with that. I mean, perhaps the majority of people have trouble with that. Well, I don't think it's all that difficult. Uh, you, you, you talk to people who know you and who've known you for a long time, and you say, what do you think I'm really good at? And then you look back over the string of successes that you've had and say, what caused that success? What was it about me that caused that? And you begin to see a pattern. You begin to realize what you're good at. And then you say, what kind of careers take advantage of this kind of talent? And then you logically choose the careers that do that, and you're going to go much further and much faster. Did you have any fears that you might not make it? Uh, yeah, there there were times, uh, certainly in medical school. I mean, uh, when I first entered medical school, I did poorly on the first set of comprehensive exams. And uh, I was sent to see my counselor, and he looked at my record. He said, you seem like an intelligent young man. I bet there are a lot of things you could do outside of medicine. And he tried to convince me to drop out. He said, you're not cut out for medicine. And uh, we can get you into another program so you won't have wasted six weeks, which seemed kind, but it really wasn't. And I went back to my apartment, and I started thinking. I said, what are you really good at? Uh, what kind of courses have you struggled in? What kind of courses have you excelled? And I realized I struggled in courses where I listened to a lot of boring lectures. And there I was listening to six to eight hours worth of boring lectures every day. And I did well in courses where I did a lot of reading. So I made an executive decision to skip the lectures and to spend that time reading. And the rest of medical school was a snap after that. And uh, years later, when I came back to my medical school as the commencement speaker, I was looking for that counselor because I was going to tell him he wasn't cut out to be a counselor. Because there are so many people who are just negative, negative, negative. They can always tell you why something doesn't work. But not too much energy placed into how does something work. And that's what we really need. And that's how we cultivate you know, the talents of our young people, not by discouraging them, but by encouraging them and helping them to work with their talents. You went from psychology to, or psychiatry to neurosurgery. Why that switch? Uh, because, uh, again, that's where I felt that my talent lay. I was always interested in the brain, and I just went from the intangible aspects to the tangible aspects. And I was so impressed, you know, when I saw the presentations by the neurosurgeons, the incredible things that they could do. And, uh, you know, like some kids, they see a fireman and they get grabbed by that. I saw the neurosurgeons and I got grabbed by that. There's some fantastic surgeries that you do, particularly on children. And I was going to ask you, is it possible, as you have done with young children, to remove half the brain if there's cancer there and the, the brain's so plastic it grows back? Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful thing about pediatric neurosurgery. Mm. Uh, the plasticity, which basically allows neurons to differentiate in a necessary way. So if something was lost, it can change directions and differentiate into the kind of cell that can replace that function. Only children can do that. And that's what makes uh, something like a hemispherectomy possible. Mm -hmm. uh, when I first started doing them in 1985, you know, they had fallen out of favor because of the high complication rate. Um, but, you know, I just kind of looked at the literature, I looked at things, and I said, you know, it fell out of favor quite some time ago. There have been a lot of advances since then. I bet we can do this now. 
and, uh, and we started doing. A lot of people thought it was pretty amazing, but uh, you know now it's quite routine all over the world, and uh, many surgeons have made improvements on the way that I was doing it, and that will continue to be the case. I wanted to come to brain health, and perhaps this is a good time to do it. And I know there's been people like Dr. Norman Doidge that have done work on the plasticity of the brain. Um, and obviously, you can do a great deal with a young, growing brain. What about when the brain becomes adult? Well, actually, we've discovered in, in recent years that there's more plasticity in the adult brain than we ever thought before. And I think as, as the research advances in this area, we will find ways to drive cells uh, to do what we want them to do. And uh, hopefully at some point we'll be able to train stem cells uh, that are implantable uh, to differentiate in the way that, that we need them to go. I'm pretty sure that that will be possible in the future. Of course, there's a lot of um, controversy about stem cells. Well, not as much anymore because... Uh, we have discovered that if you take uh, a mature cell and de-differentiate it back down to the immature cell, that you can then redirect it. And the likelihood that it will go in the direction you want it to go is greater than with an embryonic stem cell, which has a much greater propensity to form a tumor. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Dr. Ben Carson. I'm quoting from the Brain Foundation established here in Australia by the Neurological Foundation in 1970, and they quote some figures that the human mental capacity typically begins to decline by the age somebody's 40. What can we do about our brains to keep them healthy? Well, first of all, exercise it. You know, Alzheimer's has become quite an epidemic, largely because people are living much longer. You know, at the previous turn of the century, uh, in 1900, um, the average age of death was 47 in the United States. Now it's approaching 80. Uh, so, you know, if you're dying at 47, you're probably not going to get Alzheimer's. So uh, it's not so much that it's some new rampant disease, uh, but it's a, a consequence of our success. What we have discovered is that keeping the mind active is the best defense. Um, as you get older, learn to play an instrument, learn new languages, uh, stay involved with a, a chess group, whatever. Uh, makes a huge difference in terms of what happens. We don't fully understand uh, all the uh, etiological factors in the development of, uh, of dementia, uh, but we do know that, that staying active has a profound preventative effect. What advice can you give to people who try that but they just can't keep their attention on anything? Keep trying. Uh, don't give up. Uh, keep pushing. And, and, and work on different things. Uh, f you know, find something that you really like, something that's really interesting to you. Uh, sometimes it's not the first try. And sometimes you don't even know what's interesting to you until you keep trying things and then you say, oh wow, I really like that. Through your books you've cited many instances of where you've studied one thing and thought this is never going to be any use to me and then found out that later on that it would be. Yeah, uh, and, and that's, you know, an executive function of our brains. Uh, being able to file away those things, perhaps that didn't work the way that you wanted them, but just keep that memory, uh, because then you're going to run into something and it says, voila, you know, what I was thinking about, that, it didn't work for that, but it would work for this. That's how a lot of discoveries are made in medicine, by the way, accidentally. You know, for instance, uh, 
when it came to the first set of conjoined twins. Um, I knew that there was a big problem with bleeding to death. Uh, because, you know, the, the blood vessels in the head, you know, some of them are, are rather substantial. And if you put a hole in them, you can bleed out in two minutes or less. And I was talking to a cardiothoracic surgeon, who was the chief of cardiothoracic surgery at Hopkins, who had done a lot of research on hypothermic arrest, where you cool the body temperature until the heart stops, pump all the blood out, and uh, then you can warm it up and pump it back in and start the heart up. And, I was thinking, wow, that would really work. And then I said, why am I thinking about that? I'm never going to see a set of Siamese twins. Lo and behold, a couple of months later, there was a set of Siamese twins. And they were looking for a solution whereby both could be saved because they were from Europe. And Europe, the only solutions in all the countries were the same. You decide which one you want to keep, and we'll cut the other one off. And uh, obviously the mother loved them both. There was no way she could make such a decision. They were looking for a way to save them both. And, uh, you know, I explained uh, what I had been thinking about and how we could use the hypothermic arrest at the appropriate time. And we put together an, an incredible team. Uh, you know, I get the credit for that operation, but it could not have been done without every single member of that team playing their part, playing it very effectively. That brings me to teamwork in a place like Johns Hopkins, which is a teaching hospital. There's obviously new young people coming through all the time. How stimulating is an environment like that? And how important is that teamwork around the place? Well, the, the, the environment is very stimulating because you have a lot of very, very smart people. Uh, and a lot of times you'll come up with an idea and there's a missing piece, but you just walk down the hallway talk to this outstanding biochemist and he said, oh yeah, I know how to do that. And, you know, that's what I did when I was doing my research. My, we, we have a two-year research period during our residency. Um, and my job was to create a new animal brain tumor model uh, that could be used uh, in the same way that we use the human uh, brain in terms of studying it and in terms of treating it. Um, it only took me six months instead of two years, which is how I got the extra year that, that I needed to come to Australia. Um, but the reason it only took six months is because I was able to go to this person and this person and this one, all of whom were great experts in their area, and put together a plan and, and have it come together very quickly. Mm -hmm. In your career as a neurosurgeon, it's kind of like you're doing very heroic things when you came to it in the first place, were there certain goals that you wanted to kick? Well, when I first came to it, I just wanted to be a great neurosurgeon, uh, be able to save people's lives, uh, and, and have a, a wonderful life. I never had any expectation that my career would turn out the way that it did. In fact, if somebody had set me down in front of a typewriter and said, type out the career that you want to have, I could not have come up with a a more spectacular scenario. What you're doing now, I think, and you certainly have an enormous number of speaking engagements and did even when you were doing more than 400 surgeries a year, you're talking to young people, you're showing them how you did it and encouraging them to, to do the same thing. Is there a pattern? Is it the same at every school, for instance, where you go? No, no, uh, it's very different. And, and I speak to lots of different kinds of groups, uh, school groups, uh, civic groups, um, political groups, uh, 
even small truckers. <laughs> I mean, you name it. Um, because, you know, what I'm trying to, to get people to do is to think logically and also to elevate the importance of education in every sphere of life. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't really matter whether you're a school child or factory worker. Uh, you have the, the ability to enhance your value to society by educating yourself. You're listening to Wellbeing, and my guest today is Dr. Ben Carson. How much can a person take charge of their own health, or how much should they take charge of their own health? Well, I, I think it's incredibly important. You know, I, I've always been interested in health, but I got particularly interested in it uh, when I developed prostate cancer uh, back uh, 12 years ago. And, you know, I ended up having surgery. Uh, fortunately, everything worked out well. Uh, and I'm completely cancer-free uh, at this stage. But, you know, I got so much mail, so much literature, books, things that people were sending me uh, during that time. Uh, ten bags of cards and letters from janitors to the president and the first lady saying they were praying for me. Uh, but I, I started reading a lot of the literature, particularly about health and wellness. And, uh, and that really opened a new chapter in my life. Uh, started thinking about health care and health care reform. And uh, obviously have become a rather outspoken advocate of uh, health care that is in the people's hands rather than in the government's hands. Do you think that your prostate cancer could have been prevented? Is that what you're hinting at here? Uh, all th I think probably most diseases can be prevented. I think if, if everybody drank six to eight glasses of water a day, ate three well-balanced meals, got regular sleep, regular exercise, didn't put harmful substances in their bodies, and greatly decreased their stress levels, most of us in medicine would be out of business. Having said that, Medicine is a good career, and people aren't going to do that, <laughs> unfortunately. But it, it did. It, but it did make me start thinking about, you know, wellness, and and how do we create a system that provides the maximum uh, amount of health for people at a cost that is affordable. How do you do that? Uh, I think you do it uh, with health savings accounts, um, and you give people health savings account at the day that they are born and they keep it until the day that they die. So it's like an insurance policy that you start paying into at birth? But, but one that, that you own that's private. Everybody has their own private health savings account. Uh, it is funded by a variety of different ways, um, including, you know, for indigent people, a government allocation each year. What you don't use is uh, accumulated. So the vast majority of people aren't going to have huge health care bills until well into adulthood. They're going to accumulate a huge amount of money by that time. You also give them flexibility within a family to shift money in their HSA. So let's say you needed a procedure or a test that cost $500 more than you had. Your wife could transfer it to you out of her HSA or your daughter or your grandmother, anybody um, in the family. And that creates enormous flexibility, obviously. Um, and then the cost of your catastrophic insurance drops enormously because you're not impinging on it for everything. You know, all of your routine costs are coming out of your HSA. Very little, uh, if anything, coming out of your catastrophic insurance. Is there anything like it already? Uh, no. 
Uh, well, there, there are some similar things. Like there are some uh, areas where uh, HSAs are used. Um, most places where they're used are incredibly happy with them and delighted with them. Uh, and the Affordable Care Act uh, that was proposed in, in uh, the United States, which that's a misnomer, but at any rate, um, you know, they limit HSAs uh, to like $3,300. Um, I think perhaps because they realized that it would really blow a hole in the whole program if people could see how HSAs work, so they limit it to, so that you know, it won't have an impact. But uh, we're in the process of, of bringing this to everybody's attention and showing people that there is a way to do this uh, that is much less expensive and that covers 100% of the people. Mm. And that's what we're looking for. And something that's easy to understand and something that is in their own hands. Because if you put the healthcare in people's hands, it brings the whole healthcare system into the free market economy. And that's what controls quality and pricing. The lifestyles of Australia and at least the lifestyle choices that Australians make and Americans make are fairly similar, aren't they? Uh, very similar. Do you know much about the healthcare plans here? Is it is that good? Uh, yeah, I obviously worked within the healthcare yeah. plans here. Uh, it's it's a mixture of uh, of private and public. Uh, everybody has the basic uh, public health care, and if you want, you can purchase uh, private insurance, which gets you things much faster and frequently much nicer. Um, uh, it works for it, it, you know most people seem to be pretty happy with it. It, it seems to work for them. Uh, I think it could be improved upon. Uh, by utilizing the system that I just talked about, uh, probably will cost less money to do that and empowers people. But, uh, you know, it, it wasn't the same kind of situation that we had in the United States with just millions and millions of people being uncovered. And, you know, that's, that's not good. And also with huge inefficiencies. Uh, I think it was really quite urgent that we do something. But, you know, you have to do the right thing, not just something. We're almost out of time, but are you still doing surgeries? No, I, I retired a year ago. And when you retire as a neurosurgeon, you can't partially retire because the malpractice insurance is way too expensive. Even if you just do one case a year, you're going to have to pay like two hundred or $300,000 for malpractice insurance, so it's not worth it. So did this free you up to do other things that you'd long been wanting to do? Uh, no, because, uh, because I was immediately thrust into the political world, which has... Uh, been very, very time consuming. Uh, for a while I was in a different state every day until I finally just told the Speaker's Bureau I couldn't, I couldn't do that anymore. So we're trying to cut back so that I can have a little bit of time, although so far uh, I'm just as busy as I was uh, when I was practicing. Thanks for taking some time to talk to us. It's been a pleasure meeting you. All right. I've been speaking with Dr. Ben Carson, a professor of neurosurgery, oncology, plastic surgery, and pediatrics. Now retired, he was the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, Maryland. He is the author of several books, including Take the Risk, The Big Picture, America the Beautiful, Rediscovering What Made This Nation Great, and Gifted Hands, The Ben Carson Story. That's also the title of a movie based on the story of this world-renowned neurosurgeon from the years 1961 to 1987. His latest book, released just this year, one that he co-wrote with his wife Candy, is called One Nation, What We Can All Do to Save America's Future. Wellbeing is produced in the studios of 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. 
I'm Graham Wilson, and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.